Thank you, everyone. Um, I can check the mic works. Sounds good? Great. Um, I was trying to explain to my family um, that I was coming out to Sydney because um, this is my first time in the region, and it's very exciting to be here. And I was trying to explain to my four-year-old, I'm going to be in Sydney, thinking that they might understand. They're like, eh. So then I said, no, no, it's, it's uh, I was trying to make it, how, does it, how do I relate to a four-year-old? Why this is significant? Exactly. So I said, I'm going to go meet Bluey. They're like, right. So at some point, I will have to somehow make it convinced that I actually did meet Bluey, and I'm, uh, we'll, we'll keep that pretense going as long as I can. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be uh, part of this conference and to uh, kick off the second day. I'll be speaking about something called design ethics. It's a thing I'm sure all of you have talked about, whispered about in, in, in corners. And um, I'm hoping to make a, uh, um, a lively discussion around this topic here because I think it's complicated and it often still talks. Uh, we don't talk about it enough. Um, throughout the session and throughout, uh, for all time, I guess, uh, I'd love to hear any feedback you might have for me or for the studio about these, uh, these questions that I'll be bringing up. Um, could I just check to see how is everyone's familiarity with this term human-centered design? I tend to think of it as a fairly large bedrock for UX design. So if you're, if you're not that familiar, you can kind of do like a middling number like this with your hand. Um, a little more familiar, maybe up to here. And if you're really familiar with it, just go up here. Can I see? Oh, there's a lot of hands. That's great. It's like a concept. Um, so that's great. If you are not familiar with human-centered design, that's totally fine. Uh, Human-centered design tends to present itself as being a very logical, linear process that has cute color graphics that describe a series of steps that sort of talk about how humans are, about the insights we build about the humans, and then making responses in some type of designed, tangible format. And these are the cute color graphics that RStudio has that purports the same thing. Now, I want to tell you about a story about how human-centered design, using processes just like these, changed the lives of absolutely millions of people. And it starts with these two designers from Stanford. And these are quotes here from Stanford's alumni magazine. Monzi Zambon approached smokers on campus and asked them what they loved and hated about their habit. The complaints were consistent. Fear of being seen with a cigarette and paranoia about smelling of smoke on a first date. Isn't that a good insight? Their first prototypes were ad hoc assemblies of bespoke components and items found on drugstore shelves. In many ways, they followed exactly the format that they were taught. Understand humans, build insights around those behaviors, and then try to build responses. Now, unfortunately, this is kind of where the story goes a little bit sideways, because rather than it being a typical story of cheerleading how awesome human-centered design is, this is the story of the dual e-cigarette, a public health scourge that didn't exist until two students figured out how to weaponize human-centered design against perhaps the very same people they were trying to serve. Somehow along the way, as they were building their thesis, so many different advisors, the university, somehow nobody noticed that the risk of harm was so present with making a product that was inherently addictive could get onto the radar of someone who has an addiction portfolio, like Philip Morris. And somewhere along the line, upon getting $12 billion offered to them, they went, oopsie, I guess we'll just do it again later. Can you see how that might be a problem? Somehow nobody noticed that this could be you know, uh, <laughs> a source of consternation or concern for like, the smokers that they were trying to help. I've, I've even heard people who've said that this actually has helped them. But somewhere along the line, upon designing things like this, which is mango-flavored pods using the same technology, 
questions about what is the purpose of us doing this work and this research had to become kind of like split a path. Do we stick on the one that perhaps we originally started on, or do we take the one that is going to get us closer to that $12 billion valuation? Can you see how that might be a problem? And I don't even blame Stanford. I'm sure there are many high, highly renowned institutions of higher education that are tackling this right now and are also hoping for the best, doing kind of like a fingers crossed approach. It makes me wonder as an industry, how did we lose our way? How did we get to a point whereby upon using the ability to understand humans as they are, we don't notice that the risk of using it against those very same humans is equally present. Now, the design industry has obviously adapted and changed over many, many years. It's over decades now. But at its root, there are aspects to how design in a commercial setting, which is primarily the, the source of really conferences like this and many of the, you know, the careers we have, those lurking aspects tend not to show up in commercial settings, but definitely show up as risks when you enter complex social issues, smoking cessation just being one of them. Now, it's not as though design hasn't actually had frameworks for what good design is. Is anyone familiar with Dieter Rams? It's a, he's a living legend, German designer, uh, ran the design team at Braun for a long, long time, was sort of like the predecessor to a lot of the work that Apple has done in the industrial design world. Uh, these 10 principles for good design, I've certainly referenced as a design professor myself many times. Uh, what's funny about it is if you look across all 10 and think back to that Julie cigarette, the Julie cigarette would have passed this test. Funny that, right? Even number six, good design is honest. That product will honestly kill you. <laughs> so how does the Julie cigarette pass the best design framework I know of and it can still get through? I don't think the framework is wrong. I just think we may be missing something. What we primarily have as an industry is a craft-based system for evaluating good design. I would say most of your careers have been evaluated on how good your craft is. I don't think that's gonna be enough. I think what we might be lacking in addition is an ethical-based framework to perhaps augment, or build on top of, or just simply to exist at all to the one that we primarily use as currency in our careers and in our industry. Lacking an ethical framework this is kind of what we have, a BYOE situation, where each of us bring our own ethical plan to projects, to teams, and just have this like blended mix of you know, ethics that you might have, which might be different than you might have, and then on the next project, you have a different mix again. It's sort of like made up as we go. Has anyone else noticed that? Anyone think that that's maybe a problem? Are we perhaps setting ourselves up for another oopsie moment again? Oops, we just made $12 billion. Oops, we just made 100 million new uh, indict, uh, addicts to a product that we perhaps weren't sure about. Let me back up a little. My name is George A. I'm one of the co-founders and director of innovation at Greater Good Studio. And we have been um, uh, in business for 12 years, based in Chicago, working exclusively uh, in the social sector for nonprofits, foundations, and government, working on complex social issues, with the inherent concern, perhaps a paranoid fear, of using design in ways that will end up causing more problems than the ones that they were meant to serve. That's like a deep-seated fear I have, constantly keeps me up at night. 
and some of the founding principles that we have when we started the studio, I think remain as important today as they were when we started them uh, back in 2011. We believe that the status quo is unacceptable and actually that might be one of the largest things we are tackling and working against at all times. We believe that lived experience is expertise and we don't appreciate how often it gets discounted against the credentialed lettered version that most people think is the only form that matters. And that design is transformative, not only for people that we work with, but that for you as a designer, you can allow yourself to be transformed through this work as well. And we work on problems like these that are evergreen. They've taken decades to build up to the level of mastery that some of these like racist, in, uh, in, indebted, and structural marginalization has taken. And it would be naive to imagine that we can somehow fix these through a design project to solve it. Can you imagine trying to fit racism into a Gantt chart? Like, what are you talking about? Please. So to imagine you can just tackle them like it's a regular project is grossly naive. We have to have the dedication and patience, as perhaps of decades, in the same scale commensurate with how long it took to get here. But the challenge of doing this work as a designer who kind of came up in the, um, you know, I got my education in England in the 90s, like probably a lot of people around my age. And what I noticed is that I don't know if we're really that, that pre ready or prepared for this. I, I feel incredibly lucky to do this work, but I'm worried about the stuff that's in me, in our practice and in our industry, because I think what we have been shown, almost like out of habit without questioning, is that we're trained almost Pavlovianly to respond to projects and RFPs with always a yes, we rarely have any training or practice with no. Actually, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because your portfolio is made up of multiple yeses. You have to have said yes in order to get a project, right? You don't have a portfolio full of no's. That would be the absence of a portfolio. So I, I think I kind of get how we wouldn't have got there. But if we never talk about how would no ever could happen, when is it ever going to happen, right? So what could be the practice? What I found is that, that that sense of maybe saying no, which seems even extreme, but just like resisting, tends to come from a place that is like a little more inward. And I found that for myself at least, I've had this thing which I, you know, just calling that quiet little voice, which I think probably many of you have heard in your careers, might be the best substitute we have. That, little, that quiet little voice that I know is inside me, every time it spoke up, do you know what I did? I went, shh, not now, bro. You have a good thing, don't blow it. Do you know what I mean? That sense of like, yeah, but th th maybe that we should maybe change it. Shh, 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 shh. Not now. Now is not a good time. Again and again and again, through my whole career, I kept doing it. And I was starting to notice that in the commercial career that I had, I was worried I was going to start becoming numb to that feeling. I want to give a few examples of, of how that quiet little voice has shown up in my career, and I'm ashamed to have to explain how much I've just went shush to every one of these. And I think, I don't think they're particularly profound, but I, I'm hoping that you might recognize some of them, because you may have heard them in your career. What is design's relationship to power and privilege? There's 10, so give me a second. Which humans are we centering when we say human-centered design? Who gets to be called a designer? How do we wean design's addiction from whiteness? 
how can designers say no to work when we have to pay off our, you know, blank rent, mortgage, medical debt? Designers often sink or swim, but why is drowning so common? This industry is brutal. How do designers decide which people in need to serve? What's the framework there? Why does philanthropy, not community, set the agenda for social change? What's the cost of speaking up? But what's the cost if we don't? Man, I think we deeply discount the corrosive aspects of staying quiet. And if they weren't already tough, the last ones are real doozy. What right do I have to do this work? I don't think these 10 are that magical. I just think these are examples of the times when I have had to shush myself because I just didn't want to deal with it. But it didn't make them go away. I'm just allowing myself and I think our team at the office to have to really confront these questions. Not with the idea that we can have an answer, but just unless we tackle them face on, we're going to completely get steamrolled by the thing that's on the other side of these questions. I suspect that there are many of you in this room who are familiar with questions just like this, and I don't blame you for shushing your quiet little voice when you've done so too. It's these kinds of observations around the design industry, because I feel like I'm still a bit of an outsider, has helped me kind of build a little bit of a practice at trying to write about my feelings and observations around design. And I still don't really identify as a writer at all. I feel writing is incredibly tiring. But I do find that there's been an enormous reception to some of the bits I've written about design education, around what defining good means, or describing uh, workplace trauma at a uh, premier design agency. And those types of writings I've found to be really uh, surprisingly uh, welcomed. And I would encourage all of you that if you also have thoughts that you want to express, you, I, I would read it. Uh, so please make sure you try to get, to get some of it out. Along that path, I got to discover this observation around a really basic phenomena in the social sector that I think gets really under-described in design that I felt completely unprepared for. It's the notion of what power is. Now, power has lots of definitions. And probably the, the best one I've ever heard was from a co-founder, Sarah. Uh, what she describes as power is the ability to change another person's reality. It's the most succinct version of how I've heard power described. And if you think about how your reality at times may have been completely changed for six months at a time over a Slack message. Anyone had that recently? You woke up and go, oh my god, now everything's different again. That might be a sign of how much power they have over you. Now, alongside this observation of power is the idea of power asymmetry, which I think is really helpful to know, because I found that that has shown up every time I've seen power. So is anyone ever familiar with that term? Um, uh, there was a weird power dynamics in that meeting. The word power dynamics is descriptive, but I'm no, I've always had a slightly hard time knowing what it meant. When I replaced dynamics with asymmetry, I go, oh, right, now I get it, which is that there was concentrated power in some and lots of very little area of, sorry, of, of power in the others. So this lopsidedness was the phenomenon I noticed. To make it a little clearer, I visualize it using a very simple tool, a triangle that I built in Keynote. And I want to just highlight how this works, because I think for designers, you might still be thinking about this in a very intellectual sense. When is the last time, I'm curious if you can raise your hand, the last time you heard about a project and from the first second of reading it, you go, oh shit, I'm never getting out alive. <laughs> like the budget doesn't make sense, the timeline is off by a third, the team, I don't even know who this team is, they're a bunch of jokers. How do they expect me to be successful? Has anyone had a project like that? <laughs> if you have, to make that visceral, that is you on the sharp pointy end of that triangle. 
Does that make sense? That means there's someone on the wide end pushing down on you. So to make this clearer, there are many, many relationships in the world that are asymmetric from the start. I don't think it has to be fixed, but the asymmetry is so baked in, it almost feels as though both parties are playing typecast roles like you've been given a script. Is, I mean, are you familiar with that feeling of like, I'm now stuck and I don't know how to get out of it? That's you on one side and someone else who may not even realize, but they often do, that they are exerting their power over you. So some of these relationships like law enforcement, DTNEs, doctors and patients, uh, funders and grantees, leadership with frontline staff, there's even a certain amount of asymmetry between me and all of you right now. I'm the only one with the clicker, <laughs> right? So asymmetry is common amongst relationships. And to not really pay attention to it means that you become very susceptible to moments when you're on the sharp end and wondering what happened. Many of the past relationships and moments I've had that were defining both career and in personal life, I found when I looked through the lens of power, I go, oh, that's what was happening. I can certainly still blame myself. That's like a full-time you know, recreational sport in my mind, blaming myself. But to untangle it from the asymmetry that was there helps me do some accounting. Now, here's the tricky bit. Greater Good Studio, right, the company I co-founded, we're all about helping those on the right-hand side on the pointy end. Where do you think we actually show up between the pointy to the wide end as a design studio? I was a little embarrassed to have to admit how far over we have to be. Does that make sense? As a design studio that has contracts, that have to pay salaries, we aren't getting projects from renters. I love renters. But they aren't going, man, you really got to figure out how to propose the right RFP. What are you talking about? Of course not. They have their own lives to deal with. Who ends up calling us for projects are the people who have actually, in some cases, made those renters in a precarious position. Can you see how potentially compromising that is? We have to be incredibly chummy with those with great power in order to get projects. Ignoring that fact is very problematic. And design, with all of the cheerleading and the rah-rah-rah that happens about how awesome it is all the time, can fool itself and the practitioners within it to thinking that you could only do good through design. When actually, because of how you get paid through the most powerful people, you are always at risk of making things worse. Design works in the shadow of powerful people and powerful asymmetry. We have to accept that. Which means that if we do design work and say yes to projects, we actually run the risk of making it worse. Which is why trying to build a practice of saying no actually becomes quite important. I love this quote here from Alice Walker. The most common way for people to give their power, sorry, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. The most powerful are very incentivized to make you feel powerless. It's one of their superpowers. And for us to shed it only works in their favor. Whether that's a junior intern through to a um, CEO, I have been surprised having met so many powerful people in my career now, how common they often say, I'm powerless in this. It's not up to me. I say, what, what do you mean it's not up to you? You're the, you're the legendary white guy that I've been told to look up to. 
how, if, you not, if you can't change things, then who can? They're like, they're, you know that emoji, the hands up emoji like this, like, I can't do anything. It's like, seriously? Oh, right, so then I realized, oh, everybody feels this, feels this sense of powerlessness. So it's actually quite universal. I, I want to disabuse you of the fact that as you get more experienced, that you won't have that. It apparently still shows up all the time. So in order for us to maybe like challenge or, and disrupt some of this asymmetry, we try to do something called a gut check every Monday with our studio and our whole team to evaluate what is the nature of this project? What are they really asking us? And is it appropriate for us to continue understanding that asymmetry, again, is baked into the entire process? What we found, particularly in the social sector, is that not every question warrants an answer. Not every RFP that has been written actually needs proposals. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Has anyone ever seen a completely ludicrous RFP? <laughs> no, don't laugh yet, because you've then gone and written bloody proposals on it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's like we're in a, stuck in an abusive relationship. They write terrible RFPs, and then we write terrible proposals. And then we complain about it later. We don't have to comply. When we assume we don't have power to change things, we just get steamrolled. And I'm thrilled <laughs> because we're still alive doing this for 12 years. That surprisingly, despite having said no a bunch of times, as proud as we are of the portfolio of projects we've said yes to, obviously, and logically speaking, we also have a good record of now saying no. And my last reckoning, we have done about 50 breakup emails over the last 12 years, with the single largest breakup being with USAID, the federal government, the US government's international agency for international development. For $2 million, we'll be greenlit as prime terrifying moment. In fact, just to kind of give you a sense of how this works, this is the very first breakup email I ever wrote. I spent eight hours over this. I was so terrified of having to write something like this to a very powerful senior uh, program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I've now written emails like this 50 times, as, as I said, using an underlying structure. And I want to share that with you. I would love it if you could take a picture, because then maybe you could write your breakup email for when you're ready. <laughs> It starts with saying, thank you very much, because it's nice to be asked. You then say no, so don't bury the lead and like, pretend at the end, PS, no. Explain, it's not you, it's me, I just can't do this. Then you give you actual justification with real bullet points. Don't use opaque language like, we don't have capacity. You know that one? Or like, it's not a good cultural fit. You're wasting your time. Please be specific. It proves to you and to everyone else you have boundaries. That's a thing. And then you say, let's be friends. You know why? Because they will never forget you. <laughs> it happens so rarely getting broken up with, you will be seared into their memory forever. <laughs> so I'm going to try to wrap this up. I would argue that without deliberate intervention, design rarely serves society. It could. It perhaps should. But because of how it's been structured for so long, it has to be interrupted. For so long now, in conferences just like this, we've seen people arguing and demanding, I want to see at the table, I want to sit at the table, where design leaders have been trying to get to C-suites, like little toddlers. I want to have more say. Design has to be at the forefront. And we've been so busy trying to get to design at scale. We are good now that we perhaps never stop, stopped at pause and wonder if perhaps we are now causing harm at scale. Design is an accelerant. It will magnify whatever it has been put to task with. 
who gets to judge when and how that gets applied. I don't know if I would necessarily trust the chief design officer to make that call. When you look back at that tree, that family tree again of what design is at its root, I would argue that design does two things particularly well. It's really good at building capital. That's the one that probably most people know it for. But I've been surprised at just how much comfort-seeking measures are baked into our practice, both by what we do as a practitioner, but how desirable comfort is for people. Do you know who loves this the most? Who loves building capital and feeling comfortable? The most powerful. That makes designers prime targets for their attention. That makes us very susceptible to feeling like, Jeff Bezos says that if we can do this one thing, maybe we can offset our carbon as long as we do it this way, which then distracts us from the other stuff that's going on. Do you know what I mean? The idea of perhaps like being used as cover to provide help, that's a distraction. Whew. But what if saying no wasn't just this like personal preference and you kind of like coming up with your BOYO and say like, I don't really know if I want to do this. What if instead it was a little bigger? What I would love to see is something more like a system of accountability that included the aspects that really most professions actually have. A code of ethics, some standards for practice, licensing and accreditation, continued education and more. I don't think it's my job to tell you what all the things should be. I just think that absent of these things, we are incredibly vulnerable, both for exploitation and through self-deception. The dually cigarette is just one of these things away. We're just like one semester away from it happening again. Now, there are many of you in this room who would be perhaps troubled by the idea of licensing and accreditation because the amount of gatekeeping that happens in design already is rife. I felt that very much. I'm not asking for more gatekeeping. I don't think we need that. What I'm asking for is more accountability. That's a little different. And I would argue that perhaps one day we might start to see a bifurcation in our industry for those who are seeking to be more accountable, serving clients who are willing to pay for that accountability, and then everybody else remaining unaccountable as things are. And I'd love to offer a little peek into what that could look like because this has been a very depressing talk so far. <laughs> Maybe some hope is to look into the future about what could that look like if we were to do design differently. Our studio has been maintaining, through the help of a number of different volunteers, a social change by design database. We have almost 300 organizations around the globe at this point, all who have decided to do design differently because they know that when they came up, they noticed the issues that were baked into their practice. And this Database at this point now has you know, a lot of industries. There's a lot of representation at the consultancies in North America with BIPOC leadership under 10 people, which is really remarkable, because actually that's pretty different than the kind of model I'd seen for how you know, design leadership looked like when I came up. So I think that's very encouraging. This is the uh, link to the database, so I'd love it if you could um, take a picture because you missed it earlier. <laughs> what you may notice not only is hopefully some hope in looking through it, but my my dream is if you notice any gaps in that database, add new ones that you know about that are not there, and if I could be even cheekier, my dream, dream, dream would be for you to say, screw it, I'm going to start my own company and add myself to it. That'd be great. If we really think through and actually talk about the rhetoric that design does so well and challenge 
how it's currently seen, we might get closer to what I think we have potential for. Rather than just building capital, I think we have the ability to be building power. And rather than just seeking comfort, I think we have the ability to be seeking truth. Design can do this, but we have to be willing to question the very fundamental practices we have been taught in order to do so. There's something so tempting by what this could mean if we would allow ourselves to do so. And I think we actually have everything we need. We have a room filled with people who are curious, who can build insights on based on human behavior, are great at making prototypes for the future. We're trained in this already. And I think we can get there if we would simply just slow down. Oops. If we were to slow down and listen to that quiet little voice that's inside all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, George. I, th I think we, we should take time for at least one or two questions if people have questions. Would anyone like? Yes. That's what I thought would happen. I think there's a microphone coming around as well. Yeah, so if you is. raise your hand. One moment. Steve, did I get too ranty? Well, you didn't swear once. So from I my was, point I was of really, view, that was, I noticed that was because, well and truly calm, George. Thank you. Yeah, I was trying to not to because I'd done a lot of swearing the last couple of days. Um, yeah. Hi. What's your name? Uh, Meg. Hi. Hi, George. Thank you for that talk. Um, I was just wondering how you navigate your inner quiet voice when you're saying no to big unethical projects, I guess, when you know that that's going to go to someone else and then you're not going to have the seat at the table. Uh, this is a really good question because I feel like um, there's a lot of narratives and consultancies that have comfort-seeking aspects to it. One of them is um, if we don't do the project, someone else is going to get paid to do it anyway. So, you know, surely we should do it. Or the other one is, um, um, if we do it, at least we'll know we'll do a good job. I find that while they might be true, I have to question, is that serving the ultimate goal? Or is that just solving to make sure that this project just goes as is? And sometimes the lack of participation can be the most resistant, most radical thing you can do. It may not be an option for everyone. But I would be keeping track of every time you notice that coming up, where every time you say that as a, as a, as a soundtrack, if we don't do it, someone else will. Keep note of every time you do that. How many times a year does that come up? We should talk about it afterwards. Thank you. Um, one more question yes. from Kevin over here. Hello. Hey, George. Thanks Hi. so much. I feel like you've been giving us a bit of a most statement here. Uh, and the bit that I'm sort of at the moment struggling with is sort of tactics. Mm. So my take on it at the moment is that you know should we be striving to be basing our design ambitions to be like closer to the middle of the power symmetry would would you say that that's a good tactic um i would be curious about how one wants to really assess where a symmetry is mm. and a, a version of that question is to say who are we centering in our project who really are we going to center in this project? And I think that that's a legitimate question. Yeah. I think a lot of times the answer is ourselves, yeah. our client, the source of that client's income, and then maybe the people we do research with. I can definitely see myself trying to move towards that, but bringing the client along on that ride, mm -hmm. that's the hard part, right? Yeah, and I find that there's a, um, this is an analogy. Are you guys familiar with meeting in, in America, which I 
have been an adoptee to, there's something called Thanksgiving. Is anyone familiar with Thanksgiving? Yep. Like a big family dinner, usually very awkward. Mm -hmm. Does anyone ever had like a really problematic racist uncle? <laughs> and you have to decide, do I really want to like convince them over this one millimeter change in their thinking, or do I want to spend time with people who I can work with and have a good time? Yeah. Which clients do you want to do all that effort for? And do, they, do you really think they're going to move? And sometimes what's a little problematic is that clients will tell you we are ready and they absolutely are not. Mm -hmm. And then we end up becoming complicit in the cover that we provide in saying we are ready. So I would be cautious of, of let's say, trying to get through every client and start to work out where's the signal versus noise in these clients. So that's why we do a lot of vetting of clients around, are you actually ready? We can do all the work all day and we, we do our very best. But when it comes to realizing that actually in some cases, you, the client, are going to get implicated by this research, the question then is, how do you plan on handling that news? Great. That usually splits people right down the middle. Cool. Thanks, George. Thank you. These are good questions. Oof. Um, we'll take one more if we have one. Over, over here in red, I think, although the light might be changing that, but yes. You're going to get your steps in. There we go. No, no, no. We have a mic. It's Thank you. Hi there, uh, Natasha. Uh, currently working for PwC, so ethics by design. <laughs> uh, really interesting topic for me, and I do a lot of stuff in inclusion, so have been having my own sort of internal reflections over the past few months. Uh, I had a question for you, which was more once you actually get on a project and uh, you start looking at team's performance, but also looking at recruitment and things like that, how do you put some of these principles into your individual teams so it's not just bring your own ethics but you can evaluate people individually based on their ethics evaluate is it almost like a like job performance yeah like do you integrate it beyond just what projects you work on but actually looking at people individually as well i, I don't know why i'm having such a funny feeling about that i would i would be nervous about evaluating someone's own ethical frameworks um, it feels a little bit of an abdication of duty um, I think the studio ought to provide an ethical framework and let people try their best to adhere to it as best they can. But to say that you as an individual have some or don't have some feels very, doesn't seem appropriate. Um, have a studio framework. Yeah, so framework. I'd say only in the last few years have we finally developed one. And a lot of that is actually geared towards protecting our research participants, including also then some guidelines for protecting our team. Um, but that is a working document that we now have. And actually, what's kind of cool, if I can brag a little, is that we include it in our proposals. Mm. And we say, look, check this out. What I'm essentially in saying is, you are paying for us to be ethical. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I've included it. I don't know if it, I don't know if a client has ever said, man, we went with the team that had the ethical plan. I don't think it's that clear. But by inserting it, we are making it very explicit that we have a plan. That, that's the best I have. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. That really helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, George. Yay, thank you. <laughs> Lovely.